Welcome to the John Mark Comer Teachings Podcast by Practicing the Way. This teaching was first given at Bridgetown Church in Portland, Oregon, as a part of the Naming Your Stage in Apprenticeship series. Please turn your Bibles to John chapter 21. John chapter 21, as we continue our practice of naming your stage of apprenticeship. Recommended reading to go along with this week's teaching in particular. Two of my favorites, um, Sacred Fire by Ronald Rollheiser. Do you know about this book? This book is in my top ten books, maybe my top five. I read it at least once a year, sometimes twice. I think I'm about read through 10 or something like that. And it's about apprenticeship to Jesus in the middle years of your life. So if you're anywhere between the age of, say, 30 and not quite dead, this is worth your time. You you interpret that to mean what you want it to. Um, This is really, in those long middle years of your life, it's all about that. I can't say enough good about it. I pass it around to all my 30 and 40-something friends, and it's like Christian crack or something. What am I saying? I don't know, but... It's really good. And then more recently, um, The Second Mountain by David Brooks, who it's not a Christian book. He's a public intellectual. He has recently become a follower of Jesus, but it is about kind of the subject matter of tonight. Can't say enough good about that. To catch you up to speed, the basic idea behind our spring practice is called stage theory in academia, and it's an attempt at spiritual cartography, just an attempt to map the journey of apprenticeship to Jesus over the arc of a life in order to better kind of plot ourselves on that map and better name Jesus' invitations in the here and the now. This evening is our last stage theory paradigm in our practice. Before we begin, though, let me just address one question that we field on a regular basis. And it's basically, all right, how, this is fine, okay, but how is any of this biblical? And does this belong more in a therapist's office than in a church? And um, short answer to that question. Don't have time for the long one. First off, thank you that you care about fidelity to the Bible. In our progressive city and in a progressive generation, that you would even ask that question like you're already on my nice list. Now I'm Santa Claus? What am I saying? (laughs) Um, Sorry, but well done. Thank you for that. Secondly, that is a valid critique, and you should know it's actually on purpose We no longer just teach the Bible, but rather oscillate back and forth between teaching from the Gospel of Matthew and a practice. And some of our practices are spiritual disciplines that are straight out of the life of Jesus in Matthew chapter whatever, verse whatever. Most of them are. But a few of them are out of the world of spiritual formation, which is a blend of biblical theology spirituality from down through church history, kind of the accumulated wisdom of sages in the way of Jesus over the last two millennia, and the best of the human sciences, in particular psychology from a faith-based perspective. And the reason we do that from time to time is all because of our working theory of change, which I don't have time to reteach. It takes about four or five hours to do it well. But if you're new to our church, usually when people ask me that question, they are newer, and I appreciate the question. Um, But you should know that we're two and a half years into a four-year-long journey on practicing the way, which is an in-depth kind of dive into spiritual formation. And if you want to know the why behind all of that, go back, listen to the vision series where there are, I think, 12 teachings in depth on our working theory of change and how we got to it. A lot of us grew up in the evangelical tradition, for which I'm grateful for a lot of it, but the working theory of change that was passed down to me was essentially go to church, read your Bible and pray, and just do that over a lifetime. And my experience, and that in many other people, is that often people in that working theory of change, 10, 20, 30, 40 years down the road, don't feel all that different. They just feel older. And um, that is not a lower view of the Bible at all. We still have an over-the-top high view of the role that the Library of Scripture plays in our spiritual formation. But I think we have a little bit of a more holistic view as the Bible as one core piece in a larger picture of what it means to apprentice under Jesus. Again, if that just is, now I have all sorts of new questions, go back, listen to that, or talk to Bethany. Um, And again, as I've said each week, she's happy to email with you. As I've said each week, um, if this is helpful, great. If not, no worries. But the ideas in particular from last week's teaching, if you were here, from tonight's, 
and from next week's, which I think is the most important, these ideas that it's my attempt to communicate them to you, but at least how they are in my mind, have been more helpful to me in my journey with Jesus over the last five years than I can really put words to. And I want to at least give you the opportunity, you do with what you want, but to let them into your life. On that note, John chapter 21, we left off here last week, but the story is just rich with all sorts of layers. Let's dig a little bit deeper. John chapter 21, verse 20. I'm sorry, verse 18. It's not that bad, I promise. (laughs) And the dad is walking out. Well done, as it should be. Mom, whoever you are in the dark, she's like the one Sunday of the year. Uh, It's a whole other teaching. But verse 18, very truly I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? You ever asked Jesus that question? What about him? What about her? Jesus answered, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. That's Jesus for, I won't tell you. Because of this, the rumor spread among the believers that this disciple would not die, but Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Notice how the writer John ends his gospel. It's not how I, for one, would expect. It's not with a miracle story. It's not with a teaching of Jesus, the kind of greatest hits of Jesus of Nazareth on the way out, but with a conversation between Jesus and Peter about the next stage in Peter's spiritual journey. And remember we said that Peter's story is in here in part because it's paradigmatic, meaning at one level it's about Peter's journey of apprenticeship to Jesus, but at another it's about yours and mine and our journey with Jesus. Why else would we need to know about Peter's future? But it's fascinating to me that Jesus thinks it's so important to know that another stage is on the docket that it is one of the few things he has to say to Peter between his resurrection and his return to the Father. And John agrees and thinks it's so important that he ends his gospel with it. Now, on that note, Jesus breaks Peter's life, and by default, yours and mine, down into two very simple stages, if you would. When you are younger and when you are old. It's pretty hard to disagree with this stage theory paradigm. When you were younger, you dressed yourself, meaning you felt like you were in control of your life, like you were in charge, quote, and went where you wanted. You felt like your life had this forward momentum, maybe even a little bit of upward mobility. You felt like there was a linear trajectory, and you, again, were in the driver's seat. But when you are old, and remember that life expectancy for a first century Jewish male was in the 30s or 40s. So by old, he likely means my age. Some of you are thinking, that's what I thought old meant too. (laughs) When you are old, you will stretch out your hands, a nod to crucifixion, meaning your life arc will follow that of your rabbi, and it will lead you more and more toward the cross. Quote, somebody else will dress you, Now it's in the passive, not the active. And lead you where you do not want to go. You will feel as you age less and less in control. And it will come down to, in Henry Nouwen's language from last week, your, quote, willingness to be led where you would rather not go. When you are young and when you are old. 
Now, this is the closest you get in Jesus' teaching to a stage theory paradigm, and it's the most basic of them all. Over the years, it's come to be called the first and second half of life. Jung was the one, I believe, who coined the language of the two halves of life, which has become the most popular, but the idea is nothing new. It dates back to Jesus' time and before. Brooks more recently called it the first mountain and the second mountain. Rollheiser, who I love, calls it essential discipleship, the struggle to get our lives together, and then mature discipleship, the struggle to give our lives away. But whatever language you prefer, it's all the same basic idea that somewhere in midlife, which actually I think is younger than most people think, there is a tectonic shift in our way of being and our journey with Jesus. And the second half of life is very different from the first. Now, first half, second half of life isn't a distinctly Christian paradigm per se. You experience a shift in midlife whether we follow Jesus or not. So what I want to do this evening is give you a brief overview of the two halves of life, which for a lot of you is review, but for others of you is a new idea. And then let's just talk for a little while about the implications it all has for our apprenticeship to Jesus in a city like Portland. Okay? Fantastic. You're awake. You're here. It's beautiful. Go Blazers. Did we win? I was in a thing all afternoon. I don't care about sports, but I like happy Portlanders. And so... I just uh, go Blazers. All right. First half of life. As um, children, we are generally happy. Psychologists call children pre-neurotic, which I love. Unless we grow up in abuse or in and out of the foster care system or in a very bad family situation, most kids feel safe, secure, and at home. I was chatting to a foster parent this morning who said, you know, it's remarkable how even children out of trauma come into a loving family environment and within weeks or months begin to, for the most part, experience a happy life. For children, the struggle of life has yet to begin, right? You tell a four-year-old, life is hard, and they just kind of glaze over. You tell a 40-year-old, and they're like, yes, I have gin. Do you want some? I mean, (laughs) whatever it is. It's yet to begin, All of that changes at puberty. Our mind and body are rocked by a surge of sexual energy, which in Christian theology is more than just the desire for titillation or an orgasm. It is the deeper desire for consummation, for creativity, for contribution to the human story. It is our energy source to drive us out into the world. Before puberty, our home was our safe place. We wanted to be near mom or dad. When a stranger was there, we wanted to hide behind mom's leg or whatever it is. We wanted to cuddle with dad. Now, once you hit puberty, like, that's not true of a 15-year-old, right? They want to get away from mom and dad. They don't want to hide behind the skirt anymore. They want to go out and experience and make new friends and experience independence and flex the muscle of willpower. We want at that point to leave home. And we do, or at least most of us do. Um, Some of us go off to college or just out into the city or the world, and we begin the search for our own home. Some sociologists call these the odyssey years, post-high school or college in our early 20s. For the first time, we don't know what's next, and we have more agency than ever before, which we love, but it comes with more anxiety than ever before, which we hate. David Brooks writes that at this point, quote, you're like a stem cell and your blessing and your curse is that you could turn into anything. By this point, it's crucial. Many of you are there right now. It's crucial that we have a vision for what life is all about. Otherwise, we get sucked into either overachievement, whether that's careerism or whatever, or underachievement, where we just waste a decade or more of our life on brunch and Instagram or whatever it is for you. But we have a few tasks in this first half of life. One is to discover our identity and calling, or in the language of therapy, to construct an ego. Not ego as in pride, but ego as in the sense of self-worth and essence. If we're well-loved at a young age, we basically enter adulthood with the sense that we're good. I mean, we have all sorts of issues, but our core is good, and we can do what our set our mind do, and we have at least a, a vague sense of what we should and should not do with our life. If we don't have that, we walk with a limp or we wander until, it's not the end of the story, but until we experience healing from loving relationship. And this is essential for us as apprentices of Jesus. Jesus said, if you lose your life, you'll find it. 
But you have to first have a life to lose, an ego to crucify. So this is very important for many of you who are at this stage to realize the depth of the Father's love and pleasure over you, that you are the beloved, to discover who you are and aren't, what you're called to do, what you're not called to do. One of the common refrains you hear the Spirit of God speak to 20-somethings is the love of the Father. Two, another task is to separate from our parents, which we see on page two of the Bible. The man shall leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, end quote. In more technical language, this is called differentiation, which is a key task in our 20s to differentiate from our family of origin and even our culture, to take all that is put on us, just dump kind of on the shoulder and to sort it and to break off the bad and to embrace the good that is our inheritance and our right and to realize what's fine. It's not good or bad. It's just not us. Third, we need to channel all of that pent-up energy, sexual or otherwise, via discipline into a meaningful life and not squander it on wild living through an absence of self-discipline and self-control. And finally, we need to choose the commitments that will define our life from there on. David Brooks in his research says that there are four commitments that make for a flourishing life. I appreciate this paradigm. One is to a vocation. Two is to a spouse or family. Three is to a philosophy or faith. And four is to a community. And during the first half of life, we choose all or some of those commitments that will define our trajectory. But all of this, the first half, is basically the journey from leaving our home to finding our home. And some people never really find a home. They wander. This is about as far as they get on the spiritual journey. They never really land, which is sad. But most people, even if it takes quite a bit longer, most people eventually land. They find themselves living inside the contours of a life with a spouse or family or just a web of relationships or friendship in a job, in a city with some responsibility, with a sense of what they think life is all about. Most people reach this point anywhere between, say, 30 and 50 years of age. Some earlier, and we call them an old soul. Some much later, and we call them other things. But at this point, We undergo a shift in our struggle as we enter midlife, or what the Jungian scholar James Hollis calls the middle passage. We hear a lot about the midlife crisis, which is very much a thing, but for most of us, I think it's far less dramatic. It usually starts, in my experience as a man and a pastor, with just with tiredness. You wake up one morning to your alarm. It's always to your alarm, and the kid's crying, and the first thought in your mind is the to-do list, and we realize one day that, oh my gosh, there's been a shift. Before our struggle was to channel all of our pent-up energy, I watched my son, who is 13, right in the thick of puberty. That kid has enough energy to, to launch a rocket to the moon and back, right? I mean, he literally can't sit still. He's just always, like, whether it's a dance or a fidget or a thing, he can't sit. He has so much energy energy all the time. It's beautiful. I don't have that problem in life. That is not my struggle anymore. It's not to contain my energy. It's to maintain my energy. The exact opposite problem. Because by this point, you know, we've made the commitments that now define our life, and they are rich and rewarding. But commitments come with responsibilities. That's why so many people avoid them. And responsibilities come with an emotional cost. And so we're tired which is actually a sign of maturity and Christ-like love, that you have come to give your life away. But in the world of Instagram and the culture we're in, more on that in a minute, to a lot of people, that feels like something is wrong. And then, for some of us, not all, but for some, this gives way to a nagging sense of disappointment. For those of you who come from trauma, this, of course, happens much earlier. But for many of us in particular who are middle class and have a decent childhood, this is where it begins to dawn on us that our life is good, but it is not all that we hoped it would be. And maybe it's even a bit of a letdown, or at least some parts of it are. We've made mistakes by this point. We have a regret or two, a failure or two, a relationship wound or two that we now have to live with. Our relationships, marriage, or otherwise are less thrilling than on TV where they all end in the first half of life and they never mature past that. 
we often at this point begin to realize just how deep our wound is. Rollheiser puts language to this shift. Once the sheer pulse of life so strong in us during our youth begins to be tempered by the weight of our commitments and the grind of our years, more of our sensitivities begin to break through and we sense more and more how we have been wounded and how life has not been fair to us. New demons then emerge, bitterness, anger, jealousy, and a sense of having been cheated. Disappointment cools the fiery energies of our youth, and our enthusiasm for life begins to be tempered by bitterness and anger as we struggle to accept our limits and make peace with a life that now seems so small and unfair. Where we once struggled to properly control our energies, we now struggle to access them. Where we once struggled not to fall apart, we now struggle not to petrify. Where we once struggled with Eros, the god of passion, now we struggle with Lysa, the goddess of anger. And where our sympathies once were with the prodigal son, they are now more with his older brother. As we age, we begin more and more to struggle with God. The first birthday I was ever depressed on was 35. And it wasn't because of aging. Um, So far, I'm a fan I have yet to ever want to go backward. Um, there's no age or stage of my life where, like, there's no golden years for me. Like, when, pe- when people tell you, by the way, if you're in high school or college, these are the best years of your life, that is a load of a word I can't say. That is so not true. Those are some of the worst years of my life. It gets better. Um, but my working theory of happiness, or what Jesus would call joy, is that it is the result far less of circumstances, not that they don't matter, but more of the result of communion with God and character. And so it, in my rubric, at least, with every passing year, I have more potential to grow in character and in communion with God, and therefore more potential to live a healthy and happy life. So I'm all for aging, right? A mentor of mine told me that his mentor once told him, your best, the best years of your life will be in your 60s, the second best decade of your life will be your 70s, the third best decade of your life will be in your 50s. All of you are 13, just sorry, just wait for it. It's coming, I promise. So it wasn't because of the aging thing, it was 35. It was this, it hit me like a ton of bricks. When I turned 20 and 25 and 30, at each milestone, I just had this sense of like, who will I become? right? Anything is possible. The sky is the limit. New York Times best-selling author, whatever it is, you know? Then I hit 35, and I woke up that morning, and I thought, wow, this is who I became. <laughs> and, and it's a bit underwhelming, to be honest. I mean, there's some great stuff in there for sure, but it was a little bit less than what I had in mine. And this is often a season for a lot of us of doubt and uncertainty and reevaluation of our life in light of a more accurate vantage point of reality. David Brooks has the metaphor of two mountains, you know, in his framework. In the first half of life, and this is especially true, again, for those of us with a sense of upward mobility, which I get is not all people, but it's most of you. Um, you know, we feel like we climb our mountain, but then, you know, when we reach the summit, either we're knocked off by failure, or a tragic mistake, or a diagnosis, or a life tragedy, or bereavement, or we get knocked off before we ever even reach the top by anything on that same list, or a lot of people just reach the top and realized, one, it's not all it's cracked up to be, like the void in the soul is still there, right? No amount of success or whatever, it's still there, and two, a lot of people then realize in midlife that, oh my gosh, there's a whole other mountain yet to climb. Thomas Merton famously quipped that we spend the first half of life climbing the ladder of success only to get to the top and realize it's leaning against the wrong wall. I love that. And at that point, many of us enter the valley in between kind of the two stages, a time of life, again, reevaluation, where our vision for life often changes, or at least our values but this is not an easy stage. And again, this is not a new idea. I think it's acute in the late modern world because of careerism and life expectancy. But I've been thinking all week about Dante's Inferno, which we think of as a poem about hell. It's actually a poem about the spiritual journey, very similar to Pilgrim's Progress. Opening line is, quote, midway in life's journey, I found myself in a dark wood having lost the way. I sent that to one of my best friends who's 40, and he's like, that's so the last two years of my life. 
midway in life's journey, I found myself in a dark wood having lost the way. I can't think of a better description of the felt experience of the middle passage. It is a hard time, but it's a key time as we receive the invitation of Jesus to a deeper but different kind of life what Brooks would call the second mountain, or Jung the second half, or Jesus would just call when you are old. And honestly, many people never go on this second journey. Again, this is where a lot of people either arrest in development or just get off the journey altogether. They just, it's, it's too much of a shift. They don't want to go down into the valley and back up the other side. But for those who do, who say yes to Jesus' invitation and life's invitation to a different kind of beam, it's no longer at that point about upward mobility. Success has very little to teach us in the second half of life. It's quite helpful when you're young, especially if you don't have a great experience of parenting where you have a real strong sense of self. But even with that, success is really helpful when you're younger, when you're 20s, or even in your 30s, because it's a signpost from God, as is failure of what you should and should not do with your life. It's a kind of sign of God's, God saying, yes, follow that. Warm, 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 hot, or what's hot? What's the game? Hot, hot, hotter, on fire, right? So success is actually quite helpful when you're young. Once you reach a certain age, it's no longer helpful. In fact, it's often more of an obstacle to maturity than it still feels great, but it's often more of an obstacle to maturity than an aid. And at first, this is hard, and we have to wrestle with God a little bit. There's a Greek um, writer who, in his autobiography, tells a story about a conversation he had as a young man with an older monk named Father Makarios. And he asked the older monk, Do you still wrestle with the devil, Father Makarios? And he said, quote, not any longer, my child. I have grown old, and he has grown old with me. He doesn't have the strength. I wrestle with God. And the young man, the young author said, with God, and you hope to win. And he said, quote, I hope to lose my child. I think what he meant by that was, you know, when we're young, we wrestle with the devil, meaning we wrestle with the fiery energies of sexuality and passion and ambition and fear. As we age and, you know, we take on commitment and with that responsibility and with that the emotional cost, we find ourselves dealing with a whole new set of struggles, disappointment, exhaustion, boredom, resentment, wounding, regret, anger at God's appointment over our life. And some of us at this point begin to wrestle with God. But if we press through that via acceptance, this is my whole teaching for next week, I hope you're around, we come to a new place of freedom more happy than ever before, more free of the need to manipulate people and circumstances to fit our ego ideal in order for us to live a safe and secure and happy life, more free of the need for our life to conform to an idealized vision, which means more free to love others, God, our life, our own experience of it, and live with joy and peace. Again, more on that next week. But the struggle at this point is no longer, in Rollheiser's language, to get our lives together, but is instead to give our lives away. We live more and more for others as we age and less and less for ourselves. The commitments that we made years before begin to do their slow, gradual work of spiritual formation. We mature into the kind of people who more and more live for love. I think of Richard and Penny, who aren't here tonight, but are in our Bridgetown community, who are late 60s, who always bring the most food for dinner, pretty much nine times out of ten, right, guys? And always stay up to clean the dishes. Matt and Anna, they don't stay up and help with the dishes. They have four little children. They're normally gone long before that. Richard and Penny, till the last person, till the kitchen is spotless. And that's just one example of many. They just give and they give, and they don't expect anything to return. It's not the, like, we'll babysit for the Normans, but the Normans, you owe us, or whatever. It's not that. It's just they give with zero expectation of return and with generosity and cheerful joy. Teresa Vivalia once said, when one reaches the highest degree of human maturity, one has only one question left, how can I be helpful? And you only have to meet a few people like this who shine with an inner luminescence, who radiate a deep joy, even as they hold the sadness of life, and who have come to the full flower of human maturity, not perfection, that's not an option, but maturity and love, to realize, oh, 
that is the end of the journey. That we all need, if you don't have some people like this in your life, find them. There's not a lot of them out there, but you just need a few. There's one, I was with him a few days ago. Every time I'm with him, it's like the horizon of possibility for my life is much higher. That's what's possible. He's been following Jesus, gosh, near twice as long as I've been alive. And I think, wow, that's what's possible down the road with Jesus. I must continue to move forward. So first half, second half, when you are young, when you are old, with the middle passage in between. Both are important. The second half builds on the first. You can't skip ahead, nor should you want to. Both are good stages, but they are very different. The first half, by way of summary, is a little bit more linear. The second is more nonlinear. First half is more about the outward journey. Second, more about the inward First feels more like a straight road with ups and downs. The second feels more like a switchback trail up the Swiss Alps. First, you're a little bit more thinking. Your thinking's a bit more black and white. As you age, most of us are more open-minded and honest about ambiguity. We feel a sense of upward mobility often, not all people in the first half, and downward mobility in the second. We mark our progress by comparing ourselves to others early on, and then we begin to mark our progress by comparing to where we've come from, where we're going, It's a little bit more about copying mentors when we're young and more about becoming our true self, becoming a mentor as we age, which means it's a little bit more about us and a little bit more about getting, not in a narcissistic way, in a healthy way when we're younger. And as we age, it's a little bit more about giving, about what we have to offer others. It's about discovering your ego when you're young and crucifying your ego as you age. It's about containing your energy and then about maintaining your energy. It's about a whole bunch of other things, and I'm over time, so let's just move on. But there's this shift, there's this fundamental shift that we all experience. And again, both stages are good and build on each other, and there are invitations of Jesus at both stages. Now, what does this mean for us as followers of Jesus? Well, we said that the whole point of stage theory is to better navigate the spiritual journey on the negative to avoid the dangers of each section of road and on the positive to cooperate with what Jesus is trying to do in us in that stage or that season of our life in order to move, move forward into maturity. So just a few thoughts on the dangers and invitations of Jesus in the two halves of life. There is so much I could say here as an exercise and a little bit of self-discipline. Let me narrow it down to three that just, as I've been praying for our time together this weekend, there's way more to say than this, but three that rise right to the top of my heart. Growth, temptation, and commitment, a word on each. First off, growth. To follow Jesus is to go on a journey um, to maturity Jesus and the writers in the New Testament offer a strong rebuke to those that don't take the next step of growth. Jesus says to the guy who put his talent in the sand, you wicked and lazy servant. Laziness is at the root of so much immaturity. That's M. Scott Peck's whole thing. It's the main reason people don't mature is laziness. Paul calls those who don't grow infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. That's Ephesians 4. Hebrews writes, by this time you ought to be teachers. You need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's word all over again. You need milk, not solid food. You're infants. You're not mature. You're not grown up yet. Now, this is a challenge for all of us because we live in a patho-adolescent city and a first-half-of-life nation. Our city that we all love, especially at this time of the year, but we all know it is a bit of a conspiracy against maturity. We hate the Portland stereotype of the place where young people go to retire, and that's less true than ever before with the rising cost of living, but there's still truth in it. Our city is a great example of pure syndrome, or what is more popularly called Peter Pan and Tinkerbell syndrome. Um, If we were a Disney movie, there's no question we would be Peter Pan as a city. But think of Peter Pan, right? The eternal boy forever young, free of responsibility, free of commitment, no family, a love interest, but no committed relationship, always happy, a life of play, adventure, and unhealthy food. Now, none of that is bad when you're 12. But when you're 25 or 30 or 35, that's a problem. Or, sisters, don't think you're off the hook. We have Tinkerbell, forever 21, beautiful, no stretch marks, no body fat, 
no tired from breastfeeding in the middle of the night, none of that, just driving all the boys crazy every time she's in the room, right, full of life and energy and freedom and free time. Again, not a bad thing when you're 21, but what about when you're 30, when you're 40, when you're 50? At that point, it's sad, but it's normal in our city, again, that we love. So many people move to this city just to play. I can't tell you how many people I talk to. Why did you move to Portland? And the answer is basically, like, they kind of shrug, like, just to hang out. Like, we moved here to hang out. You know, we're the most overeducated city in America. You know that, right? Because people don't move here for the killer job. They move here because we have kombucha on tap, which is amazing. And I'm all for love where you live, and nothing wrong with any of that, but hopefully we all agree that we need to have more to live for than brunch on the weekend or a nice hike once a month or whatever it is. Cue the emergence of the verb adulting, like adult is now a verb. That's an interesting phenomenon for our generation. Like, I'm just really struggling with adulting. Wow, it's, it's a present participle now. That's fascinating. <laughs> But there is a struggle for many of us to not waste precious years of our life on perpetual adolescence. This is further exacerbated outside of our city by Hollywood and the fashion industry and capitalism, all of which celebrate youth and bemoan old age because there is money to be made on the human quest as futile as it is for the fountain of youth. From plastic surgery and body modification to Botox to expensive creams to personal trainers to therapy to divorce court, we live in a first half-of-life culture. Everything is about not only youth but upward mobility, success as defined by the American metrics, work and things over relationships and time, freedom over responsibility, getting over giving, hustle over life in the moment. All sorts of reasons for this, as we know, the lack of initiation rights for men in particular and therefore perpetual male adolescence, the lack of meaning in a secular worldview and the default, default meaning at that point of just feel good in the moment, the loss of elders, the way that we take the elderly in our society and we put them away in a home in a part of the city that most of us never want to go to and we don't think about them. We don't have to think about our mortality. We don't have to think about the arc of a life as we start as children, become parents, and then eventually move back toward in need of care. We don't want to think about that. We don't want to go there. We'll visit grandma if and when we're in the mood. All sorts of things conspire to arrest our growth into maturity. So for those of you in the first half of life, I think my word to you is just, of course, don't let our city's immaturity arrest your growth into maturity as you follow Jesus. Like live for more than kombucha on tap. Drink kombucha on tap. It's fantastic. Paul, I don't know if you're here, but drink it. It's fantastic. And for those, but don't live for that. And for the, it's a weird thing to have to say, but we live in the city where you have to say things like that. For those of us in the second half, you know, I think, I think the call is, man, don't let our nation's first mountain vision keep you from the deeper journey through the valley and up the second mountain. But for all of us, I just keep thinking of that line from the fourth century monk Gregory of Nyssa, quote, sin happens whenever we refuse to keep growing. That's so true. I just read that in the life of David. It was the first year that he did not go out. That's when the temptation was. Never refuse to keep growing. On that note, um, next thought. It's a little bit about, about temptation and with its sin in each half of life. For most, again, not all, all right, forgive the stereotype here, but for most in the first half of life, the primary temptation and wrestle with sin that we have is sexual. Again, not just sex as defined as the orgasm, but the wider vision of sexual energy as our desire to go out and experience life in its full lust for you might look like the desire to travel or experience or eat or drink or get more than you need and more than is healthy. But at a very practical level, we hit puberty at whatever age, 12, 13, 14, and God designed your body at that point to get you into the gene pool to be fruitful and multiply. Like, you're literally at that point working against some of the inertia of your body. And in the modern world, and this is not true for most of human history, and not true of much of the world today, but for the modern Western world, 
Most of us then have to wait 10 or 20 or even 30 years before we marry and have a relational container that is strong enough to hold the goodness and raw power of sexual intimacy and still hold it under Jesus' blessing. And that's just for the 75% of us who even will marry. So there's a sense of almost like cruelty. I, feel, I have so much conviction around Jesus and his sex ethic, but also so much compassion for those in the room who wrestle with it, single or not. How to live those long years as both, particularly if you're single, and we just honor you in the room tonight, but as both a sexual human and a faithful follower of Jesus. That, for many of you, is the primary struggle, temptation, wrestle. I wrestle with the devil, right? That's the primary thing you wrestle with. In the second half of life, though, the temptation is similar, but it's different. I would argue it's for what Rollheiser calls, his language, not mine, the temptation to a second honeymoon. You know, honeymoons are a, a wonderful thing. Sometimes they go horribly wrong. But as a general rule, the idea of a honeymoon is a wonderful thing. And they serve a purpose to get us to commit to something that is long and hard but is of vital importance. And we experience a honeymoon stage, not just with a love interest or a marriage, but with all commitments, be that to a spouse, be that to a friend, be that to a new church, be that to a new city, be that to a new job or a new career or even a new idea. There's this honeymoon season of like, oh, everything's amazing and everything's perfect and there's nothing wrong with this church, job, city, relationship, friend at all. And then you kind of move through that and then you begin to see reality. And once a honeymoon has served its purpose, we need to, at that point, move on to a deeper kind of love, not built around feeling, which is still a good thing, but you can't, you can't have that be the foundation, but rather around the will to good. But this is a very hard transition to make. This is why there are so many affairs and divorces. Like, so there are three basically danger points in a marriage for an affair or divorce. The first one is at what they call the seven-year itch, which I think is just a statistical average, but usually it's about that far into a marriage. At some point you realize, and all the married couples don't elbow anybody right now, all right? But if you're a married couple, at some point you realize that this person is not, this marriage is not everything I thought it would be. And this is not, this does not fit my ego ideal, my idealized vision of utopia. This person does not quench the inner ache in my soul. The great lie that single people believe is that once they marry, they'll never be lonely again. And that's just not the truth, even though you don't hear people talk about it. But um, we hit this point where we realize, oh, wow, like I'm through the honey. This is what it actually is. This is who they actually are. This is how we actually are. That's a danger point. The other is when all the children move out of the house. If your marriage has really been about raising a family and there is not a central relationship of intimacy and friendship to last into old age. But the main danger point is at the beginning of the middle passage, which is at different ages for every single person. And it's because that is the point in life when we realize that we have been living a fantasy, not reality. Few things carry as much potential for disappointment as marriage because we project onto marriage all of this unrealistic expectation, fiction, illusion, even a spiritual ache for love and compassion and acceptance and healing and holiness, which is not a bad desire to have, but no person can live up to that no matter how great they are. People in midlife or in divorce court or at this point often say, you know, you're not in a heated debate. You're not the person I married. That's true. They never were. You married a figment of your imagination. You married an illusion who you're actually in a face-to-face relationship with now is the real them. And this is a crucial moment and an invitation to actually move from the pleasure principle as really, you, when you say you love them, often what we mean is, I like how you make me feel. There's another word for that. It's narcissism. <laughs> um, to where we move from the pleasure, which is, again, not bad to get you to commit your life to somebody. But we have to move from that to Christ-like love. And this is a tragedy, and I hesitate to say this, but I literally cannot listen to 90% of Christian teaching on marriage. And I, I, I felt like I was alone, and I was just chatting to somebody I really look up to and respect, very well educated on these matters in particular, 
And he said the same thing. He said, most Christian teaching on marriage does far more damage than good because it is often a Christianized attempt to perpetuate the honeymoon rather than to move into Christ-like love and maturity. And as long as your method for how to make your marriage great is just like manipulate your date night strategy and do this to your spouse and do this, become this, as long as that's your strategy for a loving relationship, man, it's just, it's just life hack after life hack after life hack. And at some point, you have to face reality. I married Bob, <laughs> right? Or I married John Mark or whoever. Like, and this is a beautiful moment. This is an invitation to love, to maturity, to freedom. That illusion in your mind is holding you back from love, holding your spouse or loved one back from the experience of love. So much I could say. Let me move on. My point is that the death of the honeymoon, whether it's our literal honeymoon with our spouse or any other relationship or a job or a career or a church or a workplace or anything, is actually the death of an illusion and an invitation to reality. I love this from Rollheiser, but this will bring with it a new loneliness that of seeing and accepting the actual limits of our own lives, a pain intertwined with accepting our own mortality. When the honeymoon dies, the big dream is over. We realize that we can defy gravity and make love to the whole world only in our dreams because in reality, our lives come down to this singular person, this singular family, this one city, this too small house, then less, this less than fulfilling job, this irritating mortgage, these non-famous friends, and this less than perfect body. Reality has broken through. I'm just here to encourage you tonight, <laughs> just to bless you with what's coming. <laughs> you're like 25, you're like, let me die tonight. <laughs> I have no desire to move forward on the spiritual journey at all. And this, but this is coming for you. Trust me. Some of you are like, I'm there. Like, it's so funny to watch some people look in horror and other people be like, heck yes, brother, <laughs> preach it. But this triggers a number of deep things inside of us that are hard. Most of all, the invitation to let Jesus be our God and everyone and everything else be our gift. Most of our life, we have it backward. Jesus is our gift. We're really grateful for him, but something else is our God or someone else is our God. This has to change for us to grow into freedom and love and the joy that Jesus has for us. So that sexual energy all through life, which I think when we're younger is more lust and when we're older is more the temptation to a second honeymoon. Finally, last, commitment. Just a few thoughts on that dirty word in our city, commitment. You know, um, Brooks defines commitment as falling in love with something and then building a structure of behavior around it for those moments when love falters. The fulfillment of our lives long-term depends on how well we choose and then stick with our commitments. I think for those in the first half of life, the danger is that we just never commit at all. In an age of choice anxiety, endless options, digital marketing, transience, attachment disorder, divorce, fear of failure, comparison to unrealistic expectations via Instagram, secular soteriology where we look to all these other non-God things to rescue us in our life. We live under, plus we just live in a culture-wide misdefinition of freedom as keeping your options open. Tim Keller writes, quote, freedom is not so much the absence of restrictions, that's how most people define it, as finding the right ones, the liberating restrictions. Only a Christian would use that phrase, liberating restrictions. But this is vital for our spiritual formation because it's the constraints of our commitments that form our character. Every time you make a promise and then you keep that promise one day at a time, you you turn that little inside part of you and you partner with Jesus to grow and mature your will, your character, what the Bible calls your spirit, and you more and more become the kind of person who is committed. As Paul puts it in Romans 5, suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character. So I think the invitation is first, in the first half of life, is to commit to Jesus, first off, in his call in your life, and then to something meaningful beyond yourself and your pleasure. For those of us in the second half, I think the danger is that we bail on our commitments, that once the honeymoon is over and we feel the itch, we move on to the next marriage, to the next job, to the next church, to the next city, to the next high, to the next thing, to the next philosophy, whatever it is. 
one of the highest values in the New Testament's vision of maturity. And it's worth your time, like if you want this week, just go read some of Paul in particular, but some of the New Testament descriptors of a mature follower of Jesus, whether it's Galatians 5 or Ephesians 4, whatever it is. Just go read like this vision of what is possible if you follow Jesus over a lifetime. And notice that in pretty much every single list is this concept of faithfulness. Faithfulness. It's at the core. Many people don't realize it in the Reformation, the key line that our church, wider church tradition is basically based on, the just shall live by faith. Many people don't realize that the Greek word for that is pistis, and it was almost translated into English not as faith, but as faithfulness or as allegiance. Both are valid English translations. The just shall live by faithfulness, by allegiance. During the long middle years of our life, and even when we're young, when we struggle with boredom, tiredness, disappointment, the itch for a second honeymoon, the desire for instant gratification, this is the call of Jesus to faithfulness. And let me tell you, I'm not that old yet, but I'm old enough to tell you that all of the best things in my life are the result of years, if not decades, of faithfulness. There's almost nothing in my life that is a deep source of life, character, and joy that is not the byproduct of years or even decades of what, actually it was Nietzsche who first said it, but Eugene Peterson popularized as a long obedience in the same direction. A long obedience in the same direction. When we honor that deep place inside us, real life will flow to us and through us to the world. All that to say, as we end, um, you know, we don't have a practice for this week, so feel free just to take a breath and process it with a friend or family member. One closing word, and again, that was a lot of information. Thank you for your patience. One closing word. All this talk about stage theory is great, but don't let it pull you out of the here and the now. If you're anything like me, Um, It's nice to hear this. Okay, here's the temptation. Here's the danger. Here's got it. I want to skip forward to the next one. Like the grass for me is always greener on the other side. I always want to get to the next stage and the next thing or just get out of what I'm in. And I think one of the key tasks for all of us, no matter where we are at, if we began the journey with Jesus this morning or we're 80 years into it, A key task for all of us on a daily basis is to find the goodness of God in our actual life. Not 10 years from now, not when we have kids or when the kids are a little bit older or when the kids are out of the house or when the kids come home from Christmas. It's always the kids. With kids, it's always another season than the one you're in now. Not in the fantasy, but in the reality. To find the goodness of God, not in tomorrow, but in today. Not in the fiction but in the real stuff of life, because there's goodness there, mixed with pain, yes, with suffering, yes, with hardship, yes, with disappointment, yes, but there is so much goodness. And if you don't see it, put on some glasses or get a friend with 20-20 vision to help you see your life as reality. There's goodness there. There's God's grace to you there and his kindness. There's good and beautiful and true Jesus is your good shepherd. He is out in front of you to pastor you forward into the life that he has for you. Find the goodness of God in your actual life. Thanks for listening. This podcast was brought to you by Practicing the Way. We are a crowdfunded nonprofit that exists because of the generosity of listeners like you. To support our work, join The Circle, our community of monthly givers. To give or to learn more about running or resources in your church or small group, visit practicingtheway.org.